swingy a bit, don't we? Terrific. Um, I've also um, written Bible studies to go with the sermon series, and they're available out there, at least part one is. There's more studies in the booklets than I'll be, passages we'll be looking at, uh, but yeah, groups can use it, or alternatively, individuals or husbands and wives. So they're available if you like them. And if there's not enough, just let Rachel know and she'll run some more off. (laughs) Well, let me pray. Father, we thank you again that you have revealed yourself in your word. We ask, Father, that you'll help us to understand it aright and to live by it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, it was a joy to share in the baptism earlier on, wasn't it? A joy to see folk coming to know the Lord and be able to pray for little Phoebe to really be anchored in the Lord. And so uh, it was good to be reminded about repentance of our sin and, of course, the call to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. But I guess the flow-on question is, um, how are those who are committed to Jesus to mature in their Christian faith? I suggest the vital key, of course, is to know and obey God's word, the word centred in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so certainly we ask that may our Lord continue to strengthen and deepen and mature James and Phoebe's faith through his life-giving word. And friends, that's why ever since the Reformation, Anglican services have sought to encourage the people that come in and through God's word. And so the reading and preaching of God's word have been central to Anglican services ever since the Reformation. And so this morning as we continue that, we're going to be looking at what I've called the essential Hebrews. Not looking at everything in the book, but uh, enough to give us the gist of the whole. And as we do that, we'll discover how we grow in our Christian lives through encouragement grounded in God's word. And we'll see how this growth ingredient reveals the essential truths of God's work in Jesus that form the basis of our encouragement, along with how these truths transform our lives increasingly so that they may reflect Jesus' character and mission more and more. So please come with me to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. It really is the launching pad for our journey through this wonderful book. Though we don't know who writes the letter title to the Hebrews, of course many people have made suggestions. One early writer said only God knows, which I think is the best view. Um, We don't know where he sends it. My guess is he's sending it to Rome. Nor when he writes it. My guess is around the 60s AD. But we do know a little bit about why he puts pen to paper. At the back of the book, in the end of the book, in chapter 13, he writes, I appeal to you, brothers... Bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. So it's like a written sermon. I'd hate to see a long sermon. Um, Again, there's no clear indication of who originally receives the letter, but the what of the letter suggests the first readers were Jewish Christians. But what really lies behind this written sermon? Well, it's really a pastoral heart seeking to stop 
his friends giving into the temptation, the temptation to drift away from a wholehearted commitment to Christian faith and practice. And you know what it's like to drift, isn't it, when you know, a boat loses its anchorage and it just drifts, but inevitably it drifts further and further and further away. And so the author <clears throat> writes to make clear why his readers should resist this temptation. And the drifting away in this case is really a slipping back, a slipping back to the shadow of Judaism and relying on the Mosaic law and animal sacrifices as if they were necessary for salvation. But putting it positively, we could say he writes to encourage these Jewish Christians to persevere to the end, irrespective of what life may bring. So throughout Hebrews, we'll see the author, on the one hand, warning his readers about what it's like to reject God, the danger of doing that. And then on the other hand, he'll be urging them to hold fast to Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. You see, encouragement isn't some warm-hearted sympathy, nor is it simply an understanding mindset but rather its strength and vitality are founded upon the character of the true and living God, the God who sends his Son to be our Saviour and perfect High Priest. Hence, biblical encouragement really functions to anchor our souls, providing the motivation and power to change our lives. Friends, as the author begins in Hebrews 1, he's setting the direction that the sermon he preaches from chapters 1 to 13 will take. But these opening verses also underpin his message, a message which one commentator called basic to the Christian faith. And so as he commences, he draws our attention simply to the character and purposes of Jesus Christ, the divine Son through whom God has spoken his final word. You see, the encouragement of the book is established on this fundamental truth. God isn't silent. He takes the initiative in speaking his final, his ultimate word through his Son who comes to save sinners. And so the letter starts with majestic declarations about this son. And it begins by taking us from God's past revelation in the Old Testament to his definitive self-revelation in his son, recorded of course for us in the New Testament. And this revelation comes at a major turning point. It's referred to as the last days, the major turning point in salvation history because God's revelation in his Son is foundational for the whole letter. So let's turn then to those opening verses. God has spoken in the past, verse 1. In the past, God spoke by the prophets in fragmentary and varied ways as they declared and wrote the Old Testament. Thus, the Old Testament, in a sense, is divinely incomplete. 
because it's centred in promise without God's final fulfilment in Jesus. But it still remains, of course, God's powerful and authoritative word. So God spoke in the past, but God speaks finally in his Son, as verse 2 highlights. The author uses language of speech because God is a speaking God. The whole Bible reveals that, isn't it? You think back to Genesis 1, in the beginning. And how did things happen? God spoke and it was done. So right throughout the Bible we see God is a speaking God. That's why we actually have prayer. Because we pray in response to the speaking God. But Jesus isn't simply God's mouthpiece as if all the new covenant needed was a bit of information and a kind word. Rather, he uses speech language to describe God's mighty revelation and salvation anticipated in the Old Testament but now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. See, God's word, God's revelation both achieves and explains what he accomplishes. And so as he begins, he uses four parallel contrasts to really highlight this revelation of God. And they really emphasise the two stages of revelation corresponding to the Old and the New Testaments. And his purpose, I take it, is to show what God's done in Christ is the climax of God's work begun in previous times. So the author's first contrast picks up time, doesn't it? In the past, God spoke, but now he's spoken in the last days. The days of prophetic fulfilment. Thus the climatic period of God's plan has arrived. He's now fulfilling his promises. The promises announced by the prophets in and through his son. That's how he's doing it. For the person and work of Jesus, that is his sinless life, enabling a substitutionary atoning death, along with his resurrection and exaltation, all of that indicate that the age of fulfilment has been inaugurated. Time. Recipients. In the past, God spoke to his people under the old covenant, but now he's spoken to us, which of course meant the author and his readers, and we get dragged in, don't we, 2,000 years later. And then he switches the contrast to the agents where he talks about in the past God spoke through his prophets uh, and I think he's using prophets here in the sense of everyone God used to convey his word to Israel and beyond including the patriarchs, including David and people like Moses in the past, the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and so on. But now he's spoken in the last days He's spoken decisively and finally through his son. How could we ever expect any greater revelation than that? And then lastly, he contrasts God's means. In the past, God spoke through the prophets in fragmentary and various ways, many times and many ways. But now in the last days... He's spoken in a manner that brings together the fragmentary and diverse ways of the Old Testament. For in Jesus, all of God's plans and purposes come to fulfilment. You see, in the Son, we have the supreme revelation of God. So this present one way 
is contrasted with the many ways of the past. The final and complete revelation in contrast to the fragmentary and incomplete revelation of the past. He's providing a fundamental contrast between the Old and the New Testaments. Yet it's the same God who speaks. The same God offering the same message of salvation. Hence Hebrews highlights both the continuity and discontinuity between the old and the new, between promise and fulfilment. Friends, the VIP turning point longed for in the past has now arrived. I mean, Christmas is not that long ago. Remember the stories about the people that received the infant Jesus and the joy that the salvation was come. Anna, Simeon, my eyes have seen your salvation. It's the time of fulfilment. The author is saying, pay attention. It's time to pay careful attention. For we, along with the first readers of this book of Hebrews, still live in the days of the sun and will do so until Jesus returns. See, the challenge for us is to say, are we holding fast to Christ? as God's definitive and final word for people everywhere. Not just for us, but everywhere. Why? Because there is no more up-to-date message about being right with God than Jesus. Our baptism service was all about that, wasn't it? How are we right with God? Only through Jesus. Are we listening? Are we encouraging others to listen? But these opening verses have a wealth of things to teach us. And the book of Hebrews is centred in this final revelation that comes in Jesus. The final revelation in the saving work of Jesus. Remember the cry from the cross? It is finished. The basis for what he's saying here. And so in these verses you find the author being so excited that he just overflows with things about Jesus. And there's seven what I want to call waterfall truths, like cascading over the top of this. I don't know if you've ever stood on a hot day in a waterfall and the, and the water just comes straight down, you know, filling you and covering you and quenching your heat exhaustion from climbing the mountain to get there. Not like the frozen waterfall that my son made me hike to in America, going through all the snow on the ice just to see the water all frozen. <laughs> Not like that at all. This is living water cascading over us, filling us with the truth about Jesus about his greatness, about why he is the clearest and final revelation of God. And so there's seven things that came just bursting upon us here. And the first one is he's the appointed heir, as the end of verse 2 says. He's the heir of all things. And we see that in his exaltation to the right-hand side of God. Thus all things belong to him on earth and in heaven and in the age to come. But of course the Bible also talks about the consummation of that 
heir apparent as occurring at the end of the age when he'll receive his inheritance, which the book of Hebrews talks about as the people for whom he died. The heir. Then he's the creator of the world. So not only looking forward, but looking backwards. He's created the world. The entire universe, time and space was made by God through the Son and for the Son. John 1.3 highlights that, as does Paul in Colossians 1.16. The world was made in and through Christ and for him. And so Christ's rule and inheritance are neither intrusive nor unwarranted. They're really natural, <laughs> given to him by the Father. So the heir, the creator. And then he's described in verse 3 as the radiance of God's glory. It really speaks of the fundamental relationship between the Son and the Father. All of God's greatness and majesty, all of God's glory shines through the Son. It radiates from him. And we receive God's gifts and presence through the Son, Jesus Christ. Yet what we receive, of course, is really God himself. For Christ is God's light burning and shining among us. Then next the author says he's the exact imprint, the exact representation of God's nature. In other words, he fully and truly reveals God's character to us. So what we see in the sun, you know, when we see the sun and what he's like, that's exactly what God is like. And John 1.18 reminds us of that truth as well, isn't it? About Jesus being the Son who reveals, who makes known the Father. If we want to know God's character, then it's made clear to us in the Lord Jesus. But not only is he described as creating the world, he's described as upholding the world by his powerful word, as verse 3 says. As the creator of the universe, he sustains it and upholds it with his powerful and enabling word. So the world won't finish until Jesus decides it'll finish. We don't have to worry about that. So what a blessing to know that the Son's personally and continually involved in the world that he has made. And it means also that the Son is carrying it all things through to their appointed goal. You see, the Son's cosmic and eternal work is so significant that we rejoice in it. Yet, of course, it's not the climax of these cascading waterfalls of truths. For they all come to a head <clears throat> in his redemptive work. End of verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus the Son, personally working in the lives of men and women to cleanse them from their sins. And James bore testimony that today, didn't he? He achieves all that through his atoning death on the cross. That's where our forgiveness is secured. And as we put our trust in him, that forgiveness overflows and we can be sure that we're right with God. Now, of course, the rest of the letter is going to explain how Jesus brings that for purification and all of God's blessing. Can't wait. 
What about you? As we get into that letter to see what it says. And then finally it says, he sat down in verse 4. After he made purification for sins, he sat down. Now what's the big deal about that? Well, in the Old Testament, Levitical priests only ever stood because their work was incomplete. They had to keep offering sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. There was no completion. Jesus dies on the cross, sends to heaven and sits down. It's all done. There's nothing more to be done. He's in the place of highest honour at the right-hand side of God. Place of honour and power. His work completed. His sacrifice accepted. Honoured by the Father. And so he rules and cares and forgives with all the divine authority and power. Friends, these opening verses describe the Jesus that Christians are called to follow and serve. This is the Jesus we seek to share in Robinson and beyond. There's no white-faced, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus, meek and mild. That is not the Jesus we need to share with others but the one who is the creator, the sustainer, the one who upholds with his word, the one who is the radiance of God's glory, the one who's made purification for sins. If Jesus is anything less than what's proclaimed in these opening verses of Hebrews, why would we bother? <laughs> We'd be just like every other religious grouping around the world with nothing really that has hope and a secure future. So the author to the book of Hebrews is encouraging us, yes, with the cosmic and universal significance of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, but particularly in that work of redemption. For in long run, the only real world that's worth being part of is the one where Christ rules as the very centre and purpose of creation because he is the fulfilment of the whole kingship theme in the Old Testament. He is the perfect king. He keeps it all together by his powerful word as the final revelation. And so he is the perfect prophet. And of course he offers lasting forgiveness and life through his sacrifice. He is the perfect high priest. Do we wholeheartedly believe this? is our assurance for the future anchored in these wonderful and amazing truths. The truths concerning the final revelation of God in the Son, Jesus Christ, our Saviour and Lord. May we all rejoice in those truths and share them with those around us. Amen.